Today on Know the Truth, Philip DeCourcy teaches from the book of Revelation. The second coming of Jesus will be so different from his first coming. He came the first time to a crucifixion. He's coming again to a coronation. He came the first time in shame. He's coming again in splendor. He came the first time to a tree. He's coming again to a throne. The triumphant return of the Lamb will be nothing like the humble birth of the baby in Bethlehem. As Christians, it's important to constantly challenge our limited perspective of Jesus and adjust our view to see Him as the Bible presents Him in all His fullness as the coming King. There is a day coming when He'll return in majesty and splendor. Today on Know the Truth, Philip DeCourcy invites us to join him in this journey of understanding as we open the book of Revelation together. Later, you'll learn about a practical resource that will help you reach others for Christ. Learn more at ktt.org. Now, here's Philip with his message, Back to the Future. I'm going to break this prologue, an opening paragraph, into three ideas. If you were to look at chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3, I think you would find, and I hope to show you, the personality in this prophetic book, the proximity of this prophetic book, and the profitability to this prophetic book. Jesus is the personality. The book of the Revelation is a book about Jesus Christ. We don't want to miss that. We don't want to mistake that. Look at verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the central figure in the chronicle of the unfolding of the end times. The revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Many seem to be more interested in the Antichrist than Jesus Christ. That's a mistake because the book of the Revelation is not a curiosity shop for prophetic buffs. It's a cathedral for Christ worshipers where we're brought to see the Lord Jesus Christ and to some degree as we've never seen him before, exalted. Bearing this idea in mind, the centrality of Christ in the book of the Revelation, we will find a wonderful and edifying guide to interpreting the book. And I think, secondly, it will minimize fruitless debate over the complicated and controversial details. In fact, let's go back to verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. The book begins with the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's why our old King James, in describing this book, got it wrong. This is not the revelation of St. John the Divine. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. In fact, the word revelation is the Greek word Apocalypse is from which we get our English word apocalypse. And it carries the idea of something or someone that's uncovered. It speaks of an unveiling. When used of something or someone, it speaks more than often of that which was hidden, but that's become visible. That's the idea here. 
In fact, sometimes when we think about the word apocalypse, we, we tend to think of dread and dragons and end time trumpets and, and the, the sky falling. But that's not how the early Christians would have understood the word apocalypse. It was more positive than that. It spoke of something being unveiled. The lid was being taken off something. And for them, the book of the Revelation, the apocalypse was about taking the lid off our understanding of Jesus Christ. The book of the Revelation, like no other book in the canon of Scripture, lifts the lid off Christ. This apocalypse is an unveiling from God about Christ to his servants by an angel through John. And what is the disclosure? We've already touched on that. Christ's present splendor. He's risen, seated, and by the Spirit, he's to be found among the church. Christ's present splendor, chapters 1 through 3, and Christ's future glory, chapter 4 through 22 as Christ sits until he has put all his enemies under his feet, then he will return and establish his kingdom. Listen, the purpose of this book is to help us see Jesus like we've never seen him before. Not as the lowly carpenter, but as the lofty and fearsome king. Revelation climbs to the pinnacle of redemptive history and the crowning moment when Christ appears, as we see in Revelation 19, as the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And men will cry for the rocks to hide them, to fall on them, to hide them from the face of the Lamb of God, who is now the Lion of Judah. The book of the Revelation wants us to see the one before whom kings will bow, nations will fall, and demons will squirm. What a glorious vision. What a glorious victory. In this, we find one of the great purposes of the second coming. There are many, but here's the primary one. You say, Pastor, what is the primary purpose of the second coming of Jesus Christ? I'll tell you what it is. The purpose of Christ coming again is to vindicate himself. It's unthinkable to think that the last view the world had of our Savior is the lasting view. What was the last view they had of him? Crucified, his hair matted with blood and spittle, hanging naked upon a cross, mocked by the soldiers, jeered by the crowd. That's the last view the world at large had of Jesus Christ. And it can't be the lasting view. It can't be. There's going to be another view. The apocalypse, the unveiling, the disclosure. For had they known, says Paul, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That was his first coming, but there's a second act, amen? His humiliation is over. He had prayed to his father in John 17, restore unto me the glory that I had with you. I want to tell you something, it's been restored. It's been restored. He's no longer in humiliation. 
He's no longer taunted and mocked, and his name in his presence is no longer taken in vain. He's now seated, adored by the angels, worshipped by the church, loved by the Father. And someday he's going to return, even so come, Lord Jesus. His glory has been restored. And there's coming a day when his glory will be revealed for all the world to see and all the saints to savor. That's a tremendous thought. Listen to these words by Adrian Rogers. The second coming of Jesus will be so different from his first coming. When his glory was veiled, he came the first time to a crucifixion. He's coming again to a coronation. He came the first time in shame. He's coming again in splendor. He came the first time to a tree. He's coming again to a throne. He came the first time and stood before Pilate. He's coming again, and Pilate will stand before him to be judged. The triumphant return of the Lamb will be nothing like the humble birth of the baby in Bethlehem. Amen. Jesus is coming in power and glory, according to Matthew 24, 30. Listen to me. At that moment, every belittling thought of him will evaporate. At that moment, every blaspheming mouth that has taken his name in vain will be shut. At that moment, the cross will triumph over the menorah and the crescent. At that moment, the creation will sigh in relief. At that moment, every lawyer that has fought to remove the Ten Commandments from the courthouse will stand guilty. At that moment, every minister who has failed to preach the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ will fear. At that moment, every devil and every demon will crawl back into the abyss. At that moment, Christ will be declared the winner and those without him, the loser. Amen. You've heard the story of the janitor who was waiting patiently to clean up the gym at the seminary after the seminarians had finished their basketball game. There he sat with his head in his Bible studying, and as the seminarians were leaving the gym, they noticed that he indeed was pouring over the text of the book of the Revelation. They asked him, you know what? Do you understand this complicated book? Oh, yes, the janitor replied. I understand it well. It means that Jesus is going to win. That's the most accurate analysis of the book of the Revelation. You and I need to appreciate how this message would resonate with the readers of the letters and the book itself. You see, if Jesus wins, they win. Their future and their fortune is bound up in his future and his fortune. In fact, in one of the letters, they'll be told to be faithful if necessary unto death. There were martyrdoms taking place during this era. A generation before, Nero in AD 67 had inflicted the church of Jesus Christ with unspeakable wounds. Some were fed to the lions. Some were sewn up in skins and then molested by wild dogs. Some were saturated with oil, nailed to crosses in Nero's back garden and burned alive. It was during this time that Peter would be martyred and we believe Paul. The clock has moved on. AD 95 is when we believe the book of the Revelation was written. There's been a changing of the guard. Nero has gone. 
Domitian has come. And, and emperor worship has been taken to a whole new level where, where Domitian, with, with uh, grandeur ideas about himself, makes it law that every citizen in Rome and every citizen in the Roman Empire must come once a year to a temple and put some pinch of incense in the altar and cry, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is curios. If you don't do that, there were those delegated in the local cities and the local communities to deal with you as they felt appropriate. During his reign, 40,000 Christians were slain. We believe Timothy, the bishop of Ephesus, was beaten to death by an enraged mob during this time. And John, who administered in the church at Ephesus, had been banished to the Isle of Patmos. Jesus is Lord. That's the cry of the church. And to shout it, to believe it, and to live it was to invite trouble. But that's what this message was all about. The central figure of this prophecy is Jesus Christ. And the end story and end game of this prophecy is that he will reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and Savior. And when you get that background and backdrop, then you'll understand the significance. If he wins, we win. And therefore, they were encouraged to stand victorious. The gospel would succeed. The church would triumph. These are words of comfort and strength to a regiment of the redeemed who are living behind enemy lines and suffering every day. If they needed to be faithful unto death, that would be worth it because they would gain a crown of life. They would reign with Christ. They would escape the second death. Those are the promises to the letters we'll get into. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 19, we see what I'm talking about because John says he was both a brother to them and a companion in tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ on the island that is called Patmos. The form of this book is prophetic, but the spirit of this book is pastoral. As a companion in tribulation, John is writing to them to encourage them to hold fast. Yes, Domitian was a real threat, Satan a constant foe, and their head was continually on the chopping block. But Christ, invisible, was the King of kings, and someday his reign and his rule would become visible. He is presently exalted and hidden, but someday will visibly appear and every scepter of human power will be laid at his feet. And the church militant will become the church triumphant and the crown will become a reality in place of the cross. In the end, Jesus wins. And so do they. And therefore, they were to keep ministering. They were to keep meeting. They were to keep on mission. I was interested to learn this week, when the Turks conquered Greece in the 15th century, they took over all the Byzantine churches 
and they turned them into Muslim mosques. In their domes were painted mosaics of Christ looking down upon the people, keeping watch over his flock, but the Turks plastered over the images. And for 400 years, Christ was hidden until the Greeks won their independence. And they returned their churches and they removed the plaster. And for the most part, the mosaics of Christ had remained unharmed, invisible from below, but nevertheless, they're all the time. And that seems to be the great and comforting message of the book of the Revelation. Although hidden and invisible, Christ still is among his people, looking down over his flock. And someday there will come an apocalypsis, an unveiling, and he will become visible and his triumph manifest. <laughs> what a message! A message to the ancient church. But what a message to the modern church. I was thinking about that today. The church in America seems to be in retreat. Today, it's harder than ever to be a Christian. Today, the culture is becoming aggressively secular. But listen, if you and I would take the book of the Revelation to heart, we won't lose heart. The message of this book is an upbeat one, that Christ is leading his church in triumph. That's what we read in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14. In the end, he wins. That means we win. In the end, righteousness reigns. In the end, the bad guys get it in the neck. That's why we must read the book of the Revelation and keep coming back to the future. Because if you begin with the end, things will look differently. The answers are in the back of the book. It may not be a good way to learn, but it's a great way to live. God will have the last laugh. That's what we read in Psalm 2 verse 4. So, away with our long faces and our furrowed brows, away with our chicken little thinking, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, away with our down-in-the-mouth attitudes, away with our siege mentality, away with our fear to suffer for Christ. Because, friends, we're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching to Zion, the beautiful city of God. And our faces and our feelings and our faith ought to show it. Why all this panic? Why all this pessimism? Why all this paralysis in the church today? We need to look at the back of the book and the revelation of Christ, by Christ and about Christ, which tells us, in the end, he wins. A man stopped to watch a little league baseball game. He asked one of the youngsters what the score was. The little fellow looked at him and said, we're losing 18 to zip. The man looked at him and said, well, you know what? You don't look that discouraged. Discouraged, the little boy added. Why should we be discouraged? We haven't come to bat yet. <laughs> Listen. 
Why should we be discouraged? Jesus hasn't come yet. For when he does, the score will change and the Christians will find themselves on the winning side. That's why it's time to take sides, to love Christ, to love his church, and to love the world for Christ's sake until he come, because he says, I come quickly. Oh God, we come this day amidst the clamor of international problems, wars, and rumors of wars. We see the lifestyle of the days of Lot and Noah stalking our streets and invading our cities. We see the influence of the church waning. We see apostasy among your people, the lack of true theology centered in the person of Jesus Christ. And Lord, those things concern us. But, oh God, we're not discouraged because in the end we win. Therefore, help us to be faithful. At this moment, it's unlikely we'll have to be faithful unto death, but help us to die to ourselves in the meantime. And God, help us to fill this house with our presence. Help us indeed to further the work of the gospel across the world. Help us to live radically for Jesus Christ because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Oh God, it's time to take sides. May we be found on the right side. May we be found on righteousness's side. May we be found in Christ's company. For we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, having heard the first message in this series, you can see we have a lot to anticipate as we study these seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation. You're listening to Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy and a lesson titled Back to the Future from the series You've Got Mail. Access this series online at ktt.org or download the KTT app or podcast. Well, as a radio ministry, we have no idea who's listening unless you take a moment and get in touch with us. And we're always encouraged to hear how God is using this program in your life. So give us a call today. The number is 888-644-8811. And right now we're offering a free booklet from Pastor Philip to first-time callers. It's titled, Resting in God's Faithfulness. It highlights passages from the book of Psalms, encouraging believers to practically embrace God's faithfulness in order to face the burdens of life. Again, call 888-644-8811 or request this free gift online at ktt.org. Now, perhaps you've been listening to Know the Truth for a while and you'd like to take your support a step further. Well, when you give a generous one-time gift or sign up to give monthly as a Truth Ambassador, you help listeners receive the guidance of God's Word through this Bible teaching broadcast, through the Internet, and through our printed resources. This ministry wouldn't be possible without you, so would you consider partnering with us? When you give, you'll receive the book, Authentic Influencer, The Barnabas Way of Shaping Lives for Jesus, by Jonathan Murphy. Barnabas was someone who lived in a world similar to ours, one contrary to the gospel, but he still influenced the world for Jesus Christ in practical and doable ways. 
And this book presents practical tips and encourages believers to shape lives for Jesus, starting with those around you. You can request your copy today with a gift of any amount. Call 888-644-8811 or visit ktt.org. I'm your host, Wayne Shepherd. Come back tomorrow when Philip DeCourcy continues his series in Revelation titled, You've Got Mail. That's Friday on Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Oh,